I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. I was just delighted to welcome Claire Massoud for an interview about her new book called Burning Girl, which explores the relationship between girls and how that evolves over time and how defining those relationships are. And she was absolutely fascinating to talk to. And stay tuned after my interview with Claire Massoud to hear what is on the front table at Bookshop Santa Cruz. But first, my interview with Claire. We are joined today by Claire Massoud, the best-selling author of five novels, recipient of a Guggenheim and Radcliffe Fellowship, and one of the finest storytellers today about women's friendships and what one might describe as complicated women. In her latest book, The Burning Girl, at its most simplistic, explores the unraveling of two adolescent girls' friendship. But its beauty is in the complexity— the innocence of girlhood colliding with the dictums of adulthood, the nuance of a story as shaped by the storyteller, and ultimately the ambiguity to the answers we wish life held. Claire, welcome to Just the Right Book. Roxanne, thank you so much for having me. Julia is one of our adolescents, and she's a 17-year-old narrator looking back to when she was 12 And her relationship with Cassie was her best friend. And as I mentioned in the introduction, this falls apart. And our narrator's mother assures her it happens to everyone sooner or later for reasons more or less identifiable. Julia tells herself everyone loses a best friend at some point. And you you did such a great job, Claire, of evoking what girls' friendships were like and the kind of intimacy. Do you have a recollection um, of losing your first best friend to your shock? You know, I I have different recollections of, of, of losing different best friends in different ways. My first best friend I lost because we moved countries, so Mm. I had to leave her behind. Um, We moved from Australia to, to Canada. And it was only later that I lost best friends in less explicable, in less explicable ways. But that's something that has happened a, a couple of times, you know, over the course of life, not just as a teenager, but later on too. Um, I feel as though it's perhaps in the nature of very intense friendships. I don't know. I'll come back to that in a sec. But one thing that occurs to me, as you just mentioned that, given that you moved around so much from Sydney, and I think you were born in Connecticut, right? I was, yeah. And came to school here. I went to college in Connecticut. We we lived in Connecticut till I was uh, four, and yeah. then we moved back when I was thirteen. At which point, I went to boarding school, and then uh, and then I went to college in Connecticut. So, so with all the moving around, Claire, how do you think that impacted how you view friendships or the difficulty of? holding on to them? Well, it's interesting. When I was growing up, there were no computers. So to stay in touch with people, you wrote letters. And yet I did, for years, manage to stay in touch with friends Mm. from my childhood from far away. But um, I think it's different now. I I see with my kids that, that when their friends move or they go to a different school even, it's not the same as seeing somebody every day, but the, but they don't feel that they vanished off the earth in the same way. Yeah, as well, you know, I thought about that when we moved from New York to Connecticut when I was in grammar school, and my best friend was this girl, Kathy Bendo, mm-hmm. and we wrote letters. I would swear we wrote letters daily. It was probably monthly. I have Absolutely, you know, no confidence in my view of the truth there. But uh, the most heartbreaking moment that I can still evoke today was getting back a letter I sent that said, addressee unknown. Unknown. Oh, how awful. And when you look for girls, it's a little trickier because names can change. And that was third grade. But I often have this fantasy of somehow running into her and saying, oh, are you Kathy Bendo that lived on Post Avenue in New York? Maybe you will. <laughs> Maybe you will. You know, I, I feel I've had, I've had not quite that, but I've certainly had seen people I, I hadn't seen in 30 years. It is actually one of the cool things when you, when you publish a book and you go give a reading in a, yeah. a far-flung place, sometimes somebody uh, you haven't seen in a long time just appears before you. It's quite magical. 
You know, speaking of touring, have you gotten letters or heard stories about girls who lost their best friend in some inexplicable way? Have you just... You know, I've, I've had a couple of uh, nice letters. It's I feel like it's early days, really, in a way. Yeah. Um, the, the book, the book just, just published. A couple of weeks ago, so... I hope maybe I'll have more accounts, but I, I've not had anybody say to me, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. I've never, I, I can't imagine that experience. I feel like almost everybody says, that happened to me. Let me tell you my story. And I feel that bafflement is, <laughs> is a pretty common emotion, like that, that even to this day, there's some way in which it's not explicable. So a couple of questions that come to mind in what you just said. One was the capacity that you had to tell the story in the voice of a 17-year-old was breathtaking to me. It, it so put me in that time and place. How, how did you have to recalibrate your brain to make sure you were staying in that 17-year-old voice? You know, each book poses its own challenges. And this one was hard for me in all sorts of new ways. <laughs> but one of them was to to try to walk some line between inhabiting Julia's head and her thoughts and trying to, I, I think she she probably expresses things more directly than most people her age might. My daughter reassured me that it isn't giving her thoughts she wouldn't have. But, right. But just then to, to try to toe the line between a, a sort of lucidity or, or frankness, because being a teenager also involves worrying about a lot of stuff that grownups don't think is important. So in in your book, Julia is the middle class kind of steady Eddie, uh, and Cassie is the more reckless, slightly lost character, or at least that's the way Julia tells us the story. And I was struck in—I'll read this paragraph uh, from the book— How could I have explained that it all seems like acting, like theater to me? Each of us puts on our costumes, our masks, and pretends. We take the vast, ungraspable swell of events and emotions that surrounds us and in which we are immersed, and we funnel it into a simplified narrative, a simple story that we represent as true. So how reliable a narrator is Julia, either unconsciously or consciously? I think she's reliable to the best of her ability, mm. who sort of tells willful untruths. <laughs> right. Um, I, you know, I, I remember at one point my daughter had a friend who would just out and out lie, like they were playing in the garden and she <laughs> rushed up against a, a bush that had a thorn and scratched her arm and she came in and said, a cat scratched me, I have to go to the hospital, I'm allergic to cats. And, and my daughter had witnessed the event and said, there was no cat. She wasn't scratched by a cat. Like, the, the girl just lied, you know. Um, Julia's not a liar. Right. She has the unreliability um, of somebody who has a limited perspective and who doesn't know everything. And, and who also, I mean, I think one of the things, if Cassie were telling this story, it would be a completely different version. I do think that each of us, almost all of us, when telling stories uh, that involve ourselves, we tell them in such a way that we don't come across too badly. Mm. We tend to have justifications for our actions, and they seem rational to us. And, uh, you know, certainly Julia tells the unraveling of their friendship as though it were all Cassie's fault. Um, but, but Cassie might, might tell it a different way. Well, one of the, one of the questions uh, that I am sort of glued to at this point is, wow, how would Cassie tell the story? Were you ever tempted in the writing of this to switch narrators? Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> and I wasn't because one of the things I was trying to write, if you will, was the uncertainty. Mm. And, you know, there is that, there's the Rashomon thing. We all know the Rashomon thing. Like if you, if you get it's five my favorite. Yeah, points of view, then you can get, you can put them all together and, and, you know, it's almost like doing a, a diagram. You, if you find the overlapping moment of the perspective, you presumably have found the truth. And I, I wanted the reader to feel that, that the truth was not findable and that in some way the reader, too, is involved in making up the story. Uh, and I felt if I had various perspectives that reader's agency or, or self-consciousness about her, her agency or his agency would be lost. You do leave us with 
out answers, and I assume that was deliberate. Yes. Were you tempted to give us hints, or do you, <laughs> or do you think about do you think about a follow up to it? Um, you know, um, I haven't thought about a follow up to it. I I think there the, there were lots of reasons why this novel now and the way it's written and what it is. One of the sort of large com- larger components or inspirations uh, was this. A uh, story from my own youth, and as I, as we were saying earlier, I you know I was a kid in Australia and left, and we moved to Canada, and and I I was in touch with friends by letter, you know we were pen pals, and uh, when we were in our teenage years, uh, one of the girls from our small class uh, in Australia, there was a whole series of events that tragically ended with her death, and I knew that story in fragments from the letters that these friends that I was in touch with sent to me, you know, they wrote to me about it. And I then constructed my version of what I understood to have happened um, because I had to have a version because I couldn't have something that made sense, you know, mm. didn't make sense. I had to, you know, tell, I had to figure out a story that made sense to me. Um, and I was aware all these years that story haunted me and the fact that I didn't know how fictional it was or how true it was haunted me for years. And, and even sort of 15, 20 years ago, I, I wanted to try to write something about that experience, that experience of not knowing. And uh, and and I couldn't figure out a way then. And then, latterly, I, I sort of invented these characters and invented this story and, and found a way to write about it. You know, and, and interestingly, I was writing an article of this childhood experience, and somebody fact-checking this piece that I was writing went and, and looked up every newspaper for a year and a half in the Sydney Morning Herald and found the announcement about the, this girl's death in the paper. And the, the facts cited there bore no resemblance to the facts that I had remembered. And my first thought was, oh, I had all the wrong facts. And then I thought, no, actually, this is the official story. This is just the official story. And then there was an unofficial story, some of which, you know, I may have got wrong, but, you know, the people who told me were kids and their parents maybe didn't tell them everything and so on and so forth. But the facts that I re- remember being told didn't come out of nowhere. And it was just a reinforcement of the fact that, you know, even if we think we have, you know, literally the newspaper in front of us, uh, it, it doesn't mean we know what happened. But I do wonder, when I was reading The Burning Girl, I wondered about that whole impact of rumor right along the way. I mean, there was a moment where uh, Julia repeated a rumor to Cassie, and Cassie was very upset by it. And Julia said, well, I'm not telling anybody else. I'm just letting you know that rumor uh, was out there. And it made me think about the way in which Cassie was just shaped by expectations that people had. And did she then just accommodate the expectations? Was she driven by her own set of needs? I think both things are true. And at some point, it's hard to separate in a way. You have to inhabit yourself very powerfully not to be swayed by the expectations that others have of mm. you. And and I think there are a few kids. I mean, there are some. There are some amazing kids who, who just are so resolutely and entirely themselves that they, they pay no attention. But most kids, I think, are 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 shaped in part by the expectations that others have of them. Yeah. And hard to, you know, as you say, the capacity to be that resolute. Um, And it's, you know, it has one set of problems when the expectations are high and you feel overwhelmed by meeting them. And it has another potentially disastrous set of outcomes where the expectations are low. Right, right. In in both instances, you know, I I'm a younger child, and uh, and so when I was going along through school, for eventually in high school we went to different high schools, but but for much of the way my sister was ahead of me, and so it was always and my sister was you know everybody loved my sister and it was easy for me to walk into a classroom, mm-hmm. you know because the the word that came with me was oh she's you know she's Elizabeth's little sister right and in retrospect I I always wonder how much. How much did that help? You know, I feel like that helped a lot. Right. But the flip side of it is I'm the oldest of six. And the flip side is a sister. My one of my sisters is two years younger and she did not like the constraint of being defined as your little sister, as my little sister, either because we were very different or she wanted to be her own person. Right. 
So even that can come with with its own complexity. Right. But I, I mean, I, I totally get it. And, and, and it's interesting because I, I really do feel, you know, somebody said to me, why middle school? And I said, because that's, you know, that's, that's. Oh, that's it. That's when we become who we yeah. are. And I, and I, I feel like really so many, so many things are answered. If you just, when you're dealing with a grown up and you just, and you're, and you're thinking, I can't make sense of this. You just think, picture this person in middle school. I often say that about men who I find to be sort of bullies. Yeah. I always think I can picture them in eighth grade. I know who they were. Exactly. You know, they were not part of the mainstream. Some girl didn't really like them. And that always makes me deal with that type of man in a in both a more compassionate way and unforgiving way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I know exactly. But, but the flip side, you know, I, I remember uh, talking uh, to a friend about a man our age, and she said, oh, and he's, you know, he was just born with such good genes, and I mean, his whole life is... And I said, you know what? I, I bet he was too skinny and kind of gawky in middle yeah. school because he's so nice to people. Yeah. He's so thoughtful and so aware of other people. And I said, if it had been easy for him the whole way, he wouldn't be that nice. Claire, we could probably talk for about eight hours taking each one of these strands of a conversation. Um, I just love uh, hearing your observations. But thinking of middle school, I so got why you did that, because those relationships are so intimate. And I think it's the last moment that we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, easily vulnerable. Yes. And and the question that it would make me um, ask you is, do you think you are ever capable again of the kind of innocent, intimate, vulnerable relationships we have with girls have with girls in junior high as adult women? Or how difficult do you think that is? I feel as though I had relationships that were almost as close or close in a different way, but that were um, in in college, I did. I think mm-hmm. that sort of glorious time can stretch on a bit. One of the things that I, I find poignant about midlife is that I think it's hard harder for people to be open for a different set of reasons in a way. It isn't so much for fear of being hurt, I find, as that there's this understanding that each of us is burdened by cares and troubles. You know, in the middle of life, there are parents dying, there are children growing, there are relationships frazzling, you know, there are all of these things. And I think people are much warier in part because they feel like others, their friends don't have time. Mm. My parents aren't living now, but I have a, a wise cousin who's who's older, and and she promises me that in time, that intimacy will come back. And I hope it's true. Well, so I have the perspective of a Uh 68-year-old woman, and I've been blessed my whole life with incredible friendships. I mean, I I consider it, aside from my adorable husband and son, to be one of the big joys of my life. And what I think your cousin might be talking about that I see beginning to happen is humility and compassion Mm -hmm. begins to step in. Those that might have considered themselves invincible at 48 learn that nobody's invincible, or they learn that not all their good fortune was due to their good efforts and not, and, and more importantly, not everybody's misfortunes are due to their own uh, failures. Right. I think the combination of humility and compassion, which hopefully you develop sooner than later, gives us the capacity to again be intimate and vulnerable. Maybe. maybe. I hadn't ever thought of it that way until you just said that. But I think maybe that's what your cousin might mean. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it is... That's what it is to be wise, right? Exactly. Uh, so two things, bef- well, three uh, in the last few minutes. One of the characters that I am dying to talk to is Bev, Cassie's mother, mm-hmm. because there is something – She she's one of your what I call difficult women, mm-hmm. not, not too likable, but probably like the woman upstairs um, – has a more complex story. Did the way she evolved, was it clear to you right from the beginning, or did she sort of guide your hand? Well, I think um, she, 
she, if you will, she guided my hand. I think that, I think there were there were certain things about her. She's mysterious in some ways, but I, I know her. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't literally mean I know yeah. a person like her, but my parents died in 2010 and 2012, and, and both of them in their illnesses were, were attended by a number of... Hospice nurses. Yeah, amazing nurses. Um, there are lots of different types of people who become nurses, but there are certain sorts of people who become hospice mm. nurses, it's, and it's people who can confront death. Mm-hmm. You, if you can't confront death readily, you, you just can't be a hospice nurse. Well, that's for sure. Um, and, and, there, and there are lots of reasons, uh, different reasons, why people are able to do that, and having a devout faith is one of them. I think, you know, yeah. there are people who, who are convinced not just that it makes their work meaningful and purposeful on earth, but they also believe that it isn't the end, mm. and it gives them a different perspective. So that's part of Bev for me is that, that she has that sort of strength and sense of mission and purpose. But she's also someone who, when Anders, the, the man who essentially is Cassie's stepfather, comes into the picture, she's also someone who has not for a long time felt desired. Mm. And uh, and if she were to tell her story, I think the overwhelming sort of flooding sense of wonder and relief that she felt desired, mm. she might in retrospect, you know, after it's all over, say, clouded her judgment. I hope you resurrect her somewhere, Claire, <laughs> because I find her a representative of the women that I often come across in your novels. Mm. Mm-hmm. where they appear one way and people feel sure they're that way. And then, of course, there's more. They're more complex. Yes. So maybe think about visiting Bev. You could call her something else, but <laughs> I hope we well, get to see I, her. Seeing as, I've, as seeing as I don't plan to revisit Cassie, I'd have, I'd, I'd have to... <laughs> <laughs> She could go into witness protection or something. Exactly, exactly. Uh, One last point before I ask you a final question. In your acknowledgments, you thank Louise Gluck for her poem, Midsummer, uh, for an inspiration. I um, looked up the poem and read it over the weekend. That is one, and I love her, but I don't recall ever having read this poem. I urge everyone to read The Burning Girl, but I also urge them to read that poem because, I mean, it atmospherically and emotionally was so wonderful and aligned with the book. As you say, it was your inspiration, and you executed on that inspiration pretty deftly, I would oh, say. Oh, well, thank you. You know, it's a funny thing because I, I of course, um, I've, been to, I've been to quarries in my time and so on, but I, I never had a sort of adolescent experience at a quarry, and, and yet after I read her poem, I felt as though I had, mm. because it is about a, a sort of a sexual awakening and and the way youths move as a group, you know, that yeah. in a sort of unindividuated way in, in some respect. I, it's, it's, but it's also just very beautiful and evocative and powerful. Poem. And there's something about quarries and teenagers, I think, that weave together the adventure and the illicit. Yes. Right? It has both of those things. Well, and I, I feel like almost every quarry has a sort of no, no unattended swimming. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Because they are dangerous. Claire, before we close, the question I like to ask our authors is what's the book that changed your life? Oh, what's the book that changed my life? There are so many. How can I pick just one? Maybe pick one from the age of Julia. From the age of Julia. You know, when I was, um, was I a sophomore in college? I, I went to college at 16. So when I was Julia's age, I was in college. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, that must and, have been tricky. Well, that's young. It, you know, it was as it was, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I, I picked up because the cover struck me, um, I think it was my sophomore year, off a sale table at the Yale Co op in mm-hmm. New Haven. I picked up Two Serious Ladies by Jane Bowles. Mm a novel by Jane Bowles. It's the only novel she ever wrote. She was married to Paul Bowles, who right. wrote The Sheltering Sky. And and, and I read that book, and it, I had the feeling, I had the strangest feeling as though it had been written just for me. Mm. Um, and I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on that book. Mm. And, um, and, and it's interesting, because over the years, I've come across people, 
you know, it's a, it's a pretty weird book, and a lot of people don't respond to it. But the people who do respond to it, I think, often feel, oh, this book was written just for me. And, and I think it changed my sense of, of how stories go. Yeah. Did it, did it motivate you to become a writer? Well, I already wanted to be a writer. I yeah. just, you know, I, it was one of those things I, I, I announced, you know, when I was a kid, you know. Mm-hmm. My parents gave me a typewriter for my sixth birthday because I'd already said I wanted to be a, a writer. Um, because when I found, when I figured out, I loved stories and I, when I, somebody, I guess my mom told me that somebody wrote them, like people wrote them. I thought that's what I want to do. You know, there were various books along the way that changed my sense of what, what a novel could be or how stories can go. And, you know, Notes from Underground was one of those books in high school and Two Serious Ladies was one of those books. And then they're, they're just along the way, there've been a whole bunch of, of particular books that sort of open the door wider, you know, and, and you think, oh, I could do that too. That yeah. can be done. Well, Claire, you're one hell of a storyteller. So when you were six and figured that out, um, you, you definitely knew what uh, you were doing because your stories, and this one in particular, I think there will be lots of women around the planet who will say, oh, I feel like she's talking to me in my relationship with Susie or Polly or Mary Jane. Oh, well, thank you. There's no greater compliment than that. Thank you so much. Well, Claire, I wish you just great success on your tour with the book, and I'm sure it will, like your other books, be on the bestseller list. I look I look forward to the sequels. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Roxanne. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thanks again to Claire Massoud. Now it's time to hear what's on the front table at the famous bookshop Santa Cruz. As uh, many of our listeners know, we like to interview uh, some of the best independent booksellers from around the country and hear what's on their front table because the front table generally represents uh, what they're excited about or what they think is a good jacket or what they think people will be looking for. And We are joined today by Casey Coonerty, who is the owner of Bookshop Santa Cruz. And Bookshop Santa Cruz is a very dynamic, exciting, funky, smart bookstore in funky, smart Santa Cruz. And uh, Casey's dad is the one who started the store uh, decades ago, and after going to business school and marrying and having a child, she uh, came back to Santa Cruz and took over the bookstore and has done very exciting things and, and, and brings both her passion for literature as well as her business brain uh, to running just a first-rate independent bookstore. So, Casey, welcome to Just the Right Book. Well, with that kind of introduction, I could get used to this. Thank you, Roxanne. <laughs> you can, you can. What we can do, Casey, is we can have Pat Keo, who's our sound engineer, just cut that out, and you could have it like a tune on your uh, phone for yes. when <laughs> for your when husband to listen to. <laughs> when I wake up in the morning and my kids are complaining about something, I'll just play your introduction. Oh yeah, again listen and make to this. Good about the world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, Casey, tell us a little bit about Bookshop Santa Cruz. Well, we just celebrated our 50th anniversary last year, so we've been around for quite a while. Um, we're in Santa Cruz, California, which is, you know, a university town, so we're in the heart of the downtown of that university town. It's a really vibrant downtown, tons of walk-through traffic, um, lots of lots of independent little stores for a community that really supports that. Um, and we're a large we're a large general store. We're about 20,000 square feet. So we really have a lot of space, but we try to represent Santa Cruz as well as we can. So it's a little bit beachy. It's a little bit techy because we're right next to Silicon Valley. Um, it's a little artistic um, and a whole lot of hippie. And we've been here for 50 years adapting to how this community changes. Right. So part of Santa Cruz doesn't know the 60s ended. Yes. A huge <laughs> part of Santa Cruz doesn't know the 60s ended. I mean, it really has gone through a lot of transformation because we have 30,000 people that commute from Santa Cruz to Silicon Valley every day. Wow. So it's really changed, but it, the people who have decided to live here and do that commute also value kind of the the quirky yeah. version of Santa Cruz. And that's why they're there. And that's why they're there. So it does, it's not a full, you know, 
180, but it's, um, but it's, it, it's interesting and you definitely have to keep adapting. So Casey, share with us what you did to celebrate your anniversary, because I thought that was just the coolest idea. Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, we did a whole year long worth of celebrations, but probably one of the things that I love the most is we commissioned reading benches in local public parks. So we did a kind of an RFP for local artists to design benches in local playgrounds that would inspire the next generation of readers and to create kind of reading nooks for families out in public parks. And we got three different designs and we worked with a a concrete artist and we commissioned these benches in these neighborhood parks. And then we've had story times out of them and we've seen families come and sit and read on them. And it's just been a really nice way to connect the store to the neighborhoods and Mm -hmm. kind of give a nod to the future when we were celebrating, you know, 50 years of the past. It's a brilliant idea. Casey, if you have some pictures, we would post them on our website so then people will, because we want to encourage people to come visit Bookshop Santa Cruz. Sure. And having pictures of the benches would be cool because they're wonderful. Yeah, yeah. We'd love, I'd love to send them over. That'd great, be great. great. Yeah. yeah, we'll post them uh, on our website. So, Casey, normally I ask, like, how'd you become a bookseller? And given that your dad was a bookseller, let me ask the question a little bit differently. How did you decide to go back to Santa Cruz and take on the store? Yeah, it, it wasn't an immediate thing. I didn't know I wanted to do it my whole life. Um, there was definitely even times when I was a teenager where I kind of rebelled against the idea that my parents owned a bookstore and, and every family trip dragged me to other bookstores. And, <laughs> mm. you know, our life really, uh, our whole life is a store. But I knew that I wanted to be involved with something that built community. And I knew that I wanted to be involved in something that made a difference. I kind of turned my attention to at-risk youth actually, originally, and that's what I went to go study. But the kind of foundations of those values, I realized very quickly, came from the bookstore experience. And specifically in 1989, Santa Cruz had a massive earthquake, and our building was destroyed. And my dad and mom kind of led an effort to save the bookshop in downtown. And we worked out of a circus tent for three years in a parking lot, and hundreds of people signed liability waivers, you know, to say that there might be aftershocks and they might die to go in and rescue the books, but they went in and rescued all of our books. And and then we rebuilt downtown and we didn't just let it become defunct, you know, go out to suburban malls instead. And, and having gone through that experience, I think at the end of the day, after I went out and studied nonprofit management and really focused at at-risk youth and stuff, I realized that what I craved was to go back to a place that had meaning like that and that the bookstore could still be all those things to people Mm. and that I wanted to be part of a a legacy, a family legacy, a community legacy of a place where I knew when it was in my heart and I could do that work from there. Um, So that's kind of how I circled back around to it. And does it feel you you've been back how many years? Six? 11 years. 11? Yeah. You've been back 11 years? Yeah, I know. Casey, that's impossible. I, I charted, a court, my daughter's 10 and a half, and I got pregnant right. with her right when I arrived. I so, remember yeah. that. So um, I charted according to how unbelievably fast she's growing. So. so Casey, at the risk of asking you a dangerous question, <laughs> uh, did it turn out to be satisfying in meeting those goals? It, it has. It really has. And... Um, We've been. I've been able to do a lot uh, that is in line with my beliefs, my values, but do it from the bookstore and feel that kind of sense of community and love and family around it. So, for instance, this year we have a year-long programming effort called Words to Act On, which is a kind of result of the election and wanting to kind of make better sense of our world around us. So we partnered for three months with three different local nonprofits, Planned Parenthood, Ecology Action, which is a kind of environmental group. And now we're with um, an immigration project group here and really, you know, have community reading lists and community discussions and fundraisers. And um, it's a place where you can kind of take the written word and the intellectual rigor that goes on in, in a store, but connect it to your local community. And it's, it's just exemplifies what I was hoping for. And so it, I'm just happy that I get to do it. That's every day. great. You know, Casey, one of the things that uh, has come up here in New Haven, we had had an event with our Senator, uh, Chris Murphy, and it was a pretty uh, diverse group. And it was a conversation with Chris, who 
I think is a first-rate senator. I'm delighted he represents us here in Connecticut about what he sees the issues are that we can, in fact, act on and be impactful Mm -hmm. as citizens because I think you hear and see a renewed enthusiasm for becoming engaged. So one of the um, guys that attended runs a program at Hopkins, which is a private school here in New Haven. He runs a program called Breakthrough for um, low-income kids to go through a different kind of summer school process that's very ambitious, and it's been a wildly successful program. But Michael said to me, I wish there was a book, rocks that you could pick out that we could read as a community so people are really have sort of the framework to listen to each other. Because even though the white community in New Haven is incredibly progressive, there is still a feeling that they don't necessarily understand low-income needs or uh, racial divides that exist. So one of the books I thought about And I wonder what you think about this as an idea or if you have another idea of a book that could be a read to bridge this um, gap that exists is one of Jane Jacobs's books. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that as as a framework for a conversation bringing all different parties together? Well, I think I mean, specifically for her, I think that's a great idea because there is so much that she brought to the conversation, but there's also some controversy about what she brought, and that's right. what you want in a good dialogue. You want to say, where did she get it right, and where did she get it wrong, and what other path should we take? Um, and so I think it's a really, I think that could be a really great choice for that kind of conversation. And, you know, we've we've cho- chosen a community read for each one of these partnerships we did, and it's really hard to choose a community read because you want it to be accessible. Right. You want it to be enlightening. You want to kind of move the dialogue forward. Um, and we've chose some nonfiction work for some of the others, and I think for this immigration project one, we really actually wanted to turn to to, you know, some fiction, um, because sometimes you can get more feeling from that and get a more understanding, even if you're not going into the detailed policy landscape of it. And so what'd you pick? It's interesting to say, do you want to choose a Jane Jacobs or do you want to choose um, an, an actual fiction story that takes place in these communities as a launching point for that kind of conversation? Mm-hmm. We chose for the immigration one, we chose Enrique's Journey by Sonia Nazaro, right. you know, which is a true story, so it is nonfiction, but it's kind of written in, in a storytelling kind of way, so it bridged the gap between those things about a 16-year-old boy who sets off on a journey to come to America to find his mother who had left her family in Honduras to try to, you know, make more money and hopefully to send them and, and his journey to get here and what he faced. And um, I think when people read something like that together and then talk about the policy implications, it, it can mm. be really powerful. That's, that's not, you know, I feel that way when I think about comparing, let's say, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson mm-hmm. and Lesson Before Dying by Ernest Gaines. Yes. Where yeah. you... You know, when I think about how prescient Ernest Gaines was in writing about Lesson Before Dying, because when he came out with that book, I think it was probably 20 years ago, this really wasn't a conversation happening in our country in any way that it is. You know, and now it's, you know, you read about it all the time. It's not necessarily solving the problem as quickly as some would hope, but he certainly covered the issue. And then, you know, and Just Mercy does it through telling the stories of these individuals and to some degree, you know, the the frustrations of the lawyers and the legal teams kind of working with, with people um, to get there. And so, yeah, each of them, you wish, you almost like want to create a reading list like they do for incoming freshmen, yeah. right? Yeah. Where you have a variety of different books that all kind of lead to some larger questions, but you can hit it from a bunch of different angles. I always wish that we could do that. <laughs> you know, I the other book on immigration that I've loved in the last year is, there's a book that came out called City of Dreams, which covers New York City and the role of immigrants in the city. And it goes back to the 1600s. And it, it, you know, it's a little bit of a doorstop, but I thought he did um, a superb job because you're reminded that this kind of um, concern that immigrants are sort of 
lesser people or not as smart or this or that or disruptive to the society has been going on since the 1600s. And some of the people that they were considering the bad people became the aristocrats of the 1700s or of the 1800s. And it's a great, it's a great reminder of this. These are not new stories. Right. These are not. And even the United States having immigration quotas is not a new story. No, no. Um, Yeah. And it's a nonfiction book, but he tells the story by picking different characters from different centuries centuries and with different outcomes and roles. So that's another one to take a look at. Um, it's not a quick read, so I don't know it'd be good for the widest reading public. Right. Yeah, it's, um, yeah I was just in Washington, D.C. with my, my kids, and we were looking at photos of, you know, thousands upon thousands of Ku Klux Klan marchers walking down Pennsylvania Avenue. And mm. it is important to kind of look back and say, we've been here before, <laughs> you know, yeah. what's the same, what's different. And, um, and to look at books, both that capture the history and kind of say, here's a variety of things that immigrant communities are facing. I mean, one of that we created a reading list for this this partnership and of you know ten twelve books, and we started asking the question: Are we talking about the American immigration experience? Are we talking about immigration experiences in other countries? Are we um, you know are we talking about refugees? Are we talking you know and how do you how do you capture that huge subject yeah. um, and do it justice? And there's all kinds of of books that you want to include, you know, the, the refugees, um, which is, you know, a newer book that came out, or Home Fight, um, Exit West, which, you know, is about... I love that book. Uh, yeah, which is, you know, about these two people who somewhat kind of magical go through these doors and end up in different places, but where do they really belong? And, you know, or The Namesake by Jim Lahiri. I mean, there's so many books that you could include... Right. Well, Casey, if you give us that reading list, we will link to your website um, for people who might uh, want to get it, because I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in that. And why not buy the books from you? Yeah, no, that'd be great. And we have a kids reading list, too. We created one for our children's population as well. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. And we'll link it back to Bookshop Santa Cruz. Great. All right. Now, the main part of your job here um, is to talk a a little bit about what's on your front table. Yes. Um, Which is interesting because, you know, I feel we have a lot of those uh, political books on our front table. We're obviously a very political community, a very progressive community. Um, But the ones that really speak to me, again, to kind of go back to this theme is, is the fiction books that aren't necessarily directly talking about our political situation today, but the experiences that you feel through those characters um, gives you a sense of, of what we're facing and helps you just get more empathetic, you know, connect through mm-hmm. empathy to make that happen. So my favorite book right now that's on the front table just came out last week is Sing Unburied Sing by oh, Jasmine, Jasmine Ward. Yeah. Um, so she's, you know, she won Salvage the, the National Book Award for Salvage the Bones. But this book takes place in a, in a small community in the Mississippi coast, and it charts one family, three generations of one family that are going through a lot of very American issues between addiction, incarceration, you know, multi-generational support, and um, you see it through the lens of the, the kids in this family, especially this young boy. And um, it is so incredibly beautiful. And I think it's such an American story right now. Um, and her, she has very lyrical writing, mm. very poetic. Um, and so it really it hits you in the heart. And um, I just think it's, it just got longlisted for the National Book Award this time around. And I think it's much deserved. So mm. that's one of my favorite books out right now. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and another one that kind of is in the same vein, which is also another one of my favorite books this year is Pachinko by Min Jin Lee. I don't know that book. It came out earlier this year, but I'm keeping it on the front table because I think it's just that good and <laughs> I want people to read it. It takes place over the 20th century in Korea and Japan. And it follows, I think it's four generations of one family over the course of that century, um, from a small fishing village in Korea to their kind of immigration to Japan. And then what I didn't realize, and I learned through these characters, was kind of the the um, the way Koreans were treated by mm. occupying Japan during the, the 20th century. Right. And how they were really put as the others, and they were, you know, discriminated against in a number of ways. 
Um, Weren't and, the comfort girls Korean women? You know, I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't do know feel why like... I remember they brought Korean women over to Japan to be the comfort girls or prostitutes for Japanese military. Yeah, I'm, I'm, that that sounds very much in line from what I read in this book. I mean, there's all kinds of you know, from not being able to get a job to not being able to get certain housing to just the way they were treated, walking around the street, and the things that were said to them. Um, you know, just really treated as a, as a kind of second-class citizen. Yeah. Um, but it follows it it's through four different generations. So you see this kind of desire for belonging and for wanting to be judged on who they were and not on, you know, their their status or where they came from. And it's I think it's a story that resonates for all of us. Um, and it just happens to take place in this region. And this region, obviously, is very interesting region right now so yeah. um it's it's remarkably written it's just one of those epic those epic novels that how do you spell it it's a p-a-c-h-i-n-k-o oh like it is the game okay pachinko. like yeah. the yeah they part of it takes place in the pachinko halls in um in japan which i guess a lot of the korean folks ran um and so that's why it's called that. But it's an exceptional book. And um, Those are two great suggestions, Casey. Thank you. Yeah. And I have one last question for you. Yes. Um, which I like to ask. And that is, what's the book that changed your life? Oh, my goodness. That is hard. Um, <laughs> it's not my job to ask easy questions, yeah, I Casey. Know it's <laughs> I mean, it's different books that changed my life at different moments. Um, I would probably say maybe The Grapes of Wrath. Mm. By Steinbeck, I it both kind of centered me to this region. It takes place, you know, in the Central Coast in California, but it was one of those those first books when I was in high school and I read it that made me realize that um, that you could learn history through through storytelling and that mm. it was a powerful way to do so and that and that you could link different things that went on in history and I ended up becoming a history major <laughs> um, in college yeah. and I think a lot of it had to do with kind of history not seeming so dry and dull um, and it's what I still like to read today so I think it really plays into my role as a bookseller. You know, The Grapes of Wrath, it's, it's, I was thinking about it when you were talking about immigration and it made me wonder, is it still on reading list for high school kids, do you think? It is around here, I think, um, just because it's so so connected to this region. I don't know if it is. I wonder. Widely. I'm going to check. Yeah. I mean, it's a real story of migration. And, um, and I mean, so many of his books are read in so many different ways. I don't know if they've moved on to something more contemporary, but yeah. it's, um, and the funny thing is when I'm thinking of all the books that changed my life, I've never gone back and reread any of them. I think because I don't want to lose that feeling I got mm. of why it impacted me in that moment. Um, but Grapes of Wrath is probably one of those books one day when I retire, I'll probably go back and You know, I think about again. that also. I mean, I don't think I reread books predominantly because there's too many other books right. I want to read, but I'm often curious about the degree to which the impact of a book that I consider changing my life was uniquely tied to my age mm -hmm. or what else was going on at that moment, that attachment to that book. And you're right. You've, you've expressed it in a way I hadn't quite thought about it is I don't want to ruin that. Yeah, it's it's such a special thing, you know, it's both the, what you read and the feeling you had when you read it. And that feeling can't be duplicated even if you read it later. Maybe, I mean, maybe the nostalgia and the memory will make it worthwhile, but I'm so worried that it wouldn't be what I remembered and it wouldn't, that I'd suddenly like lose that part of me. <laughs> yeah. Wendy Lesser, who's an essayist who wrote a book called I think it was called rereading. One of the things that she talks about in rereading a book is it's a way to visit yourself of that age. Hmm. Because if it if it resonated with you to that degree then that it will inform you in some way about who you were then. Right. Now I don't I I'm not saying I buy or don't buy that principle because I've never pursued it, but it's an interesting way of thinking about it. It is an interesting way. I think sometimes we don't take a step back and we we focus so much on the book we read and not what it meant to us. You yeah, know, that we we never get that reflection time. Yeah, and I think we it'd be an interesting exercise to sit down and really think about it. What are you reading now, Casey? Um, I am reading Autumn, the Ali Smith uh, book. And are you that, liking it? I am liking it. It's it's not linear. Mm. It's 
um, it's really all over the place. They call it the first post-Brexit book. Yeah. And it was shortlisted for the Man Booker, so that's why I was interested in reading it. Um, I had a hard time with it. Yeah, I just there was the snippets of the story between the boy and the girl, you know, or the man and the girl. You know, it really speaks to me. But then it goes off in these tangents, and um, it, it's not—it's not definitely not going to be for everybody. So I haven't quite finished it, and I don't know—I don't know what I'm going to think about it, but. It's, um, it's interesting that two of the books that are nominated for any number of awards are Autumn by Ali Smith and Lincoln and the Bardo by George Saunders mm-hmm. are both very much either a new novelistic form or just an an aberration of a novelistic form and and how people are reacting to that form. Like Lincoln and the Bardo, I surrendered to it and right. and didn't try to put my own notion of what a novel, how it ought to be structured, and ultimately found it very satisfying. And he's one of my, you know, I, I love his writing. But Autumn, I don't know, maybe it was the day I picked it up, I thought... I'm not going to do it. Yeah. I mean, I actually, I had that with the Ministry of Utmost Happiness. Yeah. I wanted to read it, and I started it, and I just said, you know what? I just, I can't do this. That's the Aranda Roy book? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's interesting. You wonder if people are being nominated for prizes because they're pushing the boundaries or because it's a really great story. Yeah. And some of my favorite books that are, you know, just really great story weren't necessarily on those lists, Um, and and you do kind of wonder what they're trying to get at. Um, yeah, was Exit West on any of the lists? I forget. Exit West was. Yeah. And I had, there was definitely, I, that book has resonated with me. I've gone back to it, and I really, really loved the end. But it wasn't an easy book for me to read. I, I didn't, like, finish it and be like, I want, you know, you should run out and read this right now. Um, yeah. I, I, it was more kind of an intellectual love of it. And, um, and But, yeah, it was also on those lists, and I kind of feel like, for the same reason, it just it did things a little differently, yeah, and it pushed the boundaries a little bit. Like you think about, like my one of my favorite books this year is the Celestine. I don't know if you yeah. Ever oh read yeah, I it. haven't but, read it. Yeah, it's just it is it's just so good, you know. <laughs> and I just know anybody who read it will just love. It will just be such a pleasurable reading experience. Um, you know what I love and about not that getting book? Nominated, you know, or anything, but well, you know, one of the things I like about that book this this makes me maybe sound really stupid is I bet people by virtue of her name will be surprised by how American the topic is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, true. isn't it like Shaker Heights, Ohio? Yeah, it is. <laughs> right? It is. It's very suburban. It's a very suburban story. Um so, yeah, it's interesting. It's well, really interesting. Well, Casey, it's been such a pleasure uh, to have you on. I hope we'll uh, get you back on the show again. It's been fun uh, to have the conversation. Yeah, it's fun to talk to you, and I appreciate it. It's fun to talk about books. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> Sometimes, we, remarkably, we don't get to do that. No, we don't. <laughs> Thanks again to today's guest, Claire Massoud's book, The Burning Girl, is available now. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about, including what's on the front table at Bookshop Santa Cruz, just go to bookpodcast.com. Just the Right Book Podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Pat Keogh, and our producer, Christina Torres. Thank you all very much for listening.